I mean, I'm not doing very much these days, but sometimes when I've gone out and given a talk or something like that, and one of the comments that I made to the organizers, like, wow, that was a very generous audience. You know what I mean? And so I think that if you are generous as a presenter, the audience will be generous to you. And it's not zero sum. It's not like there's a certain amount of goods that you're that you're that that, that it's 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 positive sum. And so by being generous to them, they show generosity to you and everybody ends better off. Much like this interview. Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. The, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, as I told you before we got started, I've been following your work, Dan, for, for many years. So I'm super excited. I appreciate you taking the time and sharing your ideas. And I want to start with something which is very much connected to the theme of our podcast, communication, public speaking, presenting. In preparation for this conversation, I did some, some research and I found out something that I didn't know, which is that many years ago, you worked as a chief speech writer for then Vice President Al Gore. That is true. Wow, I didn't know that. And, and then what happened? Then I decided I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in politics and that I really wanted to be, go out and become a writer of my own stuff under my own byline. So, um, But I started out earlier in my life uh, uh, working in politics. And you've done... And, and I stumbled into becoming a speechwriter because I was a pretty fast typist. <laughs> and you've done well. And talking about speech writing, speeches in general... Your TED Talk, which for our listeners, highly recommend a fantastic talk presentation, the, the Puzzle of Motivation, if I remember the title well. I, I guess, Dan, that was connected to your work on uh, a, a Drive, I guess, which is the science behind what motivates people. And now the last time I checked, that talk has been viewed more than, it was viewed more than 11 million times, like huge can you, it would be very useful, I'm sure, for our listeners. Can you share something about your experience, either preparing for or giving a TED Talk? Well, I mean, I think it's it's more instructive to talk about all, all talks. I mean, I don't think there's anything special about, about TED Talks. Um, in fact, I think that in many ways, TED Talks have become, you know, uh, some, of, some of them are good, but I think they've also, I think they've become a bit of a cliche at this point. Uh, I gave that one a long time ago, and in that and in that time, I feel like everyone and their brother has given a TED talk, which is probably a good thing. But to me, they all kind of sound alike. Uh, and in terms of you know the preparation for anything, any kind of talk or any kind of presentation, I mean, I you know it's pretty it's 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 pretty standard. I, you know, you have to think about what uh, who's the audience, uh, what does the audience know, what does the audience need. Um, and how can you convey that in as concise and clear and compelling a way as possible? And then you hone and hone and hone and practice and practice and practice. Yeah, I I agree 100%. And you mentioned a couple of questions, like who's the audience? What what do they know? What do they yeah. need? You, I think it was in one of your books, To, to Sell is Human, there is a chapter on pitching. And you invite people to in preparation for a pitch for a presentation to when we want to of course we need to identify our key messages you say that your key messages will be the answer to three key questions what do you want your audience to know yeah. what do you want them to feel yeah. what do you want them to do which is exactly then what we do yeah. when we work with our clients as presentation coaches during brainstorming sessions Tell us more about the, the the power of these three questions. What do you want your audience to know, believe, and do? Yeah, I mean, I think that that offers an incredibly useful form. I'm mean, just agreeing with you that it's an incredibly useful form of preparation. Um, what it forces you to do is think about the, the point of the exercise and who you're talking to. One of the things that amazes me, it's, it's true in writing, it's true in people giving presentations, is that... You don't get any, sometimes you, you, you think that they haven't even thought about who the audience is. Um, and 
and it's all about them. And so I think that what you want to do in a presentation, I think it's also true in writing as well, is you want to have the focus on the audience. And and those three levels, I, we think of them as levels or three different compartments or three different pathways into understanding. Uh, I think that you, you have to have that kind of three-dimensional three-dimensional view. You want people to know something, all right? You don't want, you, I, I think it's 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 empty headed if you're just trying to get people to, to, to feel. Um, you want them to know something. But I also think that it's a little impoverished if you only want them to know something. Now, there are certain circumstances where the whole point of your presentation is to convey knowledge to, to people. If, if, you're, if the only purpose is to convey knowledge, then I'm not sure a speech is the ideal form of doing that. I mean, I think you might as well just write a short memo or write a, you know, write a piece. So, so you want people to know something. You want people to feel something. And that doesn't have to be anything grandiose. Uh, it doesn't have to be that you want them to be moved in a way that they would, might be moved by a great symphony or a great piece of art. You might just want them to feel a sense of relief that they have clarity on something that previously was confusing. Um, and it's important to understand that the knowing and the feeling, while I'm describing them as separate compartments, in a sense, they're actually intertwined. That when people feel something, they know it better. When people know something, they they open the pathways to feel it more deeply. So what do you want them to know? What do you want them to feel? But also, and this is actually uh, one of the rare instances when my experience as a speechwriter has been was was really helpful, which is that especially in politics, when you are giving a speech, and this is this when I was writing speeches in politics, we weren't simply getting people to feel or to know. We wanted them to do something. We wanted them to pass. We wanted these members of. We wanted them to call their member of Congress to pass a piece of legislation. We wanted them to come out and vote for our team rather than the other team. We wanted them to, you know, um, uh, uh, take take an action, um, uh, you know, on a piece of legislation. We, we, I mean, we wanted people to do something. And so to me, you don't, I, I'm not suggesting that people necessarily create the presentation precisely that way. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to feel. Here's what I want you to do. But I think that those three questions help you really, really think through the point of the exercise. And, and, and if you get those questions right, in general, you're going to be fine. Yeah. And Dan, I think that it's not just in politics. In most cases, in many other communication contexts, you're right. We want the audience to do something. I, I agree. At the very least, we want them to feel something because you're right. If the old point is just to share some information, fine, but there's no need. Most likely, there's no need to give a presentation. Yeah. There are more efficient ways sometimes to convey information. I mean, the reason, you know, the, the you know, the reason that we have lectures as a way to convey information. I'm not saying that it's a, it's a terrible way to do that, but you have to think it's it's a you know the reason we have that is is that for 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 thousands of years we be, before there was writing and printing we had an oral tradition of that's how you had a, that's how you conveyed information and so we have st we still have the artifact of that today uh when in fact there are many other more powerful there are other ways to convey pure information i think there is something inherently powerful as you know about one human being in front of another human being or a group of human beings face-to-face, -face, making their case, telling their story, trying to convince them. I think there's something inherently you know, beautiful about that and something inherently compelling about that. Um, and so, but it has to be multidimensional. The unidimensional thing of just simply conveying information is a, is, is a waste. It's missing something. And, and you've shared so many insights and, and practical tips and frameworks and especially from this perspective in your book, To Sell is Human, we are going to go back there. But first, Dan, I wanted to ask you something about a whole new mind that you wrote years ago. And, and in that book, you predicted that the future would belong to right brain thinkers. And 
So I wanted to ask you, if you think about what's going on today with artificial intelligence and the impact it's having, not just on roles and tasks of a certain level, but even on what I would classify as right brain types of tasks where we need creativity, to what extent do you think that your prediction is still relevant? Yeah, great question. And let me take a step back and and just sharpen the sharpen the point that I made back then, and then tell you why I might it might ultimately no longer be correct. <laughs> so, so the, the the argument that I made in that book, which came out in two thousand and five, so eighteen years ago, uh, was that. Um, for a long time, the skills that mattered most in the workplace were skills that were reminiscent of the left hemisphere of the brain, not lodged there in a neuro, neuroscientific sense, but reminiscent, metaphorically, left brain skills, logical, linear, sequential, uh, you know, standardized test spreadsheet skills. And my argument was that today those, those skills are still necessary, but they're no longer sufficient. Um, because those kinds of skills are relatively easy to automate and very and relatively easy to outsource to cheaper providers in the same kind of pattern that happened with routine blue collar work. And that it was going to be these abilities more characteristic of the right hemisphere, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking that were going to be the first among equals. So that's the argument there. Now, um, I think that some of that argument might know might know i think a lot i think a lot of it was 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 spot on but i think that events have in many ways overtaken it let me give you an example of it so i thought that uh for instance empathy would become an incredibly important skill because it was hard to outsource and hard to automate um it turns out that you can automate empathy that that you there's a paper that i just read literally under last night li literally last night that that showed that uh, physicians, uh, when in responding to patients, you had a chat, you had a large language model responding to patients, and then you had physicians responding to patients and they captured the interactions. And then they showed them to another panel of people who had no idea where these interactions came from and said, you know, rate them on, on the empathy. And the large language models crushed the real physicians in empathy. So that's a shocker. Okay. That's a big deal. Uh, uh, I said in that book that um, writing at the time that that compute that software had a very difficult time recognizing faces, let alone facial expressions. Done. Software does a brilliant job of recognizing faces now, and actually facial expressions too. Although there's some contra there's some sort of disagreement now about the universality of facial expressions, but we'll leave that aside for a moment. So. So I think that 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 argument was right was pretty darn good for a while, but I think it's no longer as solid as I thought. Now, what are the consequences of that? Um, and, and what I think is that it's I, I don't believe. Let's go back to let's go back to empathy. I think it's a fascinating issue, and let's go back to physicians. Uh, I don't think that large language models or other forms of AI will replace physicians. I don't think that. But I do think that physicians, like almost every profession in the future, is going to be assisted and augmented by these kinds of things. And that the capacity of these large language models to convey, say, empathy are actually going to help physicians become more empathic. So so, so, so in, a, in a sense, I think empathy becomes a you know becomes a much more important skill i think that how we get there is profound profoundly different than anything that i imagined way back when and recently dan you i think it was a few weeks ago maybe a few months ago i saw one of your posts on linkedin you said it's not the 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 challenge here or the the risk here is not that ai will replace humans you say really we are talking about the fact that humans 
using AI will replace humans not using AI. And I think that's what you meant with the example. Yeah, yeah. And, and and again, just to be just to be fair on that, I don't think that's that profound of an insight. I think that basically a lot of people are, you know, I think a lot of people who are paying attention are coming to that conclusion. In the same way, I mean, we can we can we can analogize to other kinds of things. So, you know, um, imagine trying to do your job or my job without using a search engine. So, I mean, you know, uh, Dan with a search engine is a better performer than Dan without a search engine, right? It's not like the search engines replaced me, but 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 not using that search engine is is foolish. And I, I think that that's where we are. I think that's where we're going to go. It's a fascinating question. One we're, we're teasing out now is when 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 this begins shaking out, what are the sets of abilities and skills that are going to be necessary? And I think communication, presentation, storytelling, persuasion, those are going to be still quite important. And also, I think that encounters that are face to face rather than mediated by a screen are also going to be, be become more important. Good to know. If you say so, that's that's good to know. <laughs> uh, and I would like to stay, if you don't mind, to the concept of empathy. Now, regardless of whether or not it's human empathy or amplified by by technology but i remember that in a whole new mind but also in to sell is human in your work in general you you talk a lot about the power of empathy you say that mm -hmm. leadership is about empathy uh, again apart from technology tell us more about the power of empathy the idea of putting yourself in the audience's shoes and, and i'm yeah. asking dan because of course it's super important in leadership in work uh, work in general but Again, if we think about this podcast communication, I think the, the key word is is empathy. Tell us more. It's a great question, and it really connects to your your earlier question about those those, those three questions. So let's let's talk about what empathy is. Empathy is the there, there's a slight difference between between what social psychology what but what what sort of social scientists writ large call empathy and what social scientists writ large call perspective taking. They're they're related, but they're not quite identical. And a way to separate them is that empathy is more emotional. So can I understand what you are feeling right now? If you are sad, can I put my, or, or you are stressed out, can I put myself in your shoes? Can I see the world through your eyes and understand what it feels like to be you in that situation? Perspective taking is slightly more cognitive. It's can I understand, oh, I see you have four deadlines to meet and only time to meet to 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 get three of them done. Now I understand that you have uh, a problem that you can't solve and you need help in order to do it. And so uh, and so what the what if we, and, and it connects to the it, it connects to the to the third question in the trio. What do you want people to, to think? What do you want people to feel? What do you want people to do? If you have a sense as a leader, as a persuader, um, what people are thinking and what they're feeling, you can do a lot better in creating the conditions for them to do the right thing, for them to do what it is that's best for them or to do what you want them to do. So if you're a boss and you understand, you can you can see the world through your employees' eyes, you're going to be much more persuasive in leading them to whatever desired outcome you want to lead them. If you are a um, you know, do, doing a presentation, you're going to more easily get to that do step if you have the feel and think step. And yeah, I, I asked the question because again, I if I were to summarize the essence of communication in one word, I would choose that word, empathy. And, and then, really, yeah, yeah, because for me, there are many principles there are a few core principles that we want to follow and master when it comes to our ability to get a message across the most important one is for me communicating a message which is relevant to the audience and and their needs you may yeah. have a message which is simple for the audience to understand clear for them to follow engaging great these are all great principles but if it's not relevant if your message is not relevant to to your audience their needs and the context then then it doesn't matter that that's why I, I 
Yeah, I I agree, and and I I just I'll quibble a little bit about whether that's actually empathy. I mean, it's a great exercise to think about. Like, what is the single word that is most important in communication? And I don't know if I would pick empathy. Um, I would probably cheat a little bit and choose connect, um, because connect allows me to smuggle in both empathy, thinking, and doing. Yeah, and uh, and actually. Before this conversation, I always had this word in mind to summarize the essence of communication. As you were talking about the difference between what, what, what explaining what empathy really is, per, perspective taking, then you made me think, okay, is that still correct? But then I said, okay, I'll go ahead and say anyway. Let's. See. <laughs> um, but anyway, I said that I would. I wanted to go back to some some of the ideas that you wrote in "To Sell Is Human," which is a fascinating book. Again, for our listeners, just in case they, they don't know it, which is all about persuading, convincing, motivating others. And the argument there was that whether we like you or not, whether we are aware of it or not, we are all in sales, even yeah. if we are not selling a product or a service. And this is, again, very much connected to presenting communication done. Because, for example, in my work, I, I always tell my clients, if we think about it, any presentation is a sales presentation. Even if you're not selling a product or a service, you may, anyway, sell the audience on an idea, whatever that idea is. So, Dan, for those who are not familiar with your work connected to to sell is human can, can you tell us more what what was the gist of 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 that book uh, that work sure uh, as is my custom i'll answer that question be, but uh in a moment because I, I and 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 inst- and at first add something just to amplify what you were saying before about every presentation is sales presentation i think that's a really good way to look at it um now some people might bristle at that but i think it's really helpful it reminds me a little bit of the advice that young uh, academics sometimes get. So, in it, you know, to become a, a scholar or professor, so they will go to you know they're on the market to be a professor at X, Y, or Z university, and they will go talk. You know, they'll go give a job talk. So here's a talk about my research. And the advice that people, young academics, get is that every talk is a job talk. Um, you know, that, it, that even if it's not a job talk, it's a job talk. So if you're at a seminar with a few, you know, uh, some colleagues from another university, that's a job talk, even though it's not a job talk. So I, I think that, you know, every presentation is a sales presentation. Every talk is a job talk is actually really, really, really good guidance for people. So um, so I just want to amplify that. Now, let me answer your question. The idea behind that book, you got already laid out more clearly than I could have some of it. Uh, are, are, are there are sort of two animating ideas in that book and that body of research. Number one is that, as exactly as you say, like it or not, we're all in sales. And there's a there's a intuitive. I think it, that makes some intuitive sense for people. Uh, I also have in that book did a little bit of original research showing in in a more slightly analytic way. Um, again, intu- intuition is a feeling. Let me show you the data too. All right. So um, so what do I want you to feel? Hey, I want you to feel. We're all in sales now. Does that feel right? Yeah, that could be sense. That makes intuitive sense. All right, let me have you think about it too. We have some data showing that if you actually look at what white collar workers do all day, um, they spend an enormous amount of time persuading, influencing, convincing, cajoling. Um, if, if you describe the activity of selling without using the word sales, uh, you find that white collar workers are spending huge portions of their time doing that. They are trying to get a teammate to come on their project, project rather than another project. They're trying to get their boss to stop doing something different. The boss is trying to get employees to, to do something differently or do something in a different way. That it, that the guts of what people do on the job is an enormous amount of it. We have, we, 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 we have an average in, in our research, an average of about 40%. That average is a little bit misleading because it, the distribution is a little bit bimodal. You have some people who it's like, hey, it's only 10%, and then other people who are up in like 70 or 80%. But the gist of it is, is that it's it's an enormous part of people's jobs, even though it's not in most people's job descriptions. Um, so that's one idea. The second idea is that, which I think is even more important, is that people are 
engaging in this task of selling, persuading, influencing on a landscape that is profoundly different from the landscape that existed for almost all of human civilization. Almost everything we know about sales and persuasion came from a world of information asymmetry, where the seller had more information than the buyer. The seller, I mean, the seller of a, a product or service, but also the seller of an idea, the seller of a concept, the seller of a notion. Um, that, um, and, and in fact, it's it, it was so profound, this information asymmetry. It's, it's why we have throughout the world, basically, in, in both in legal systems and also in customs of commerce, the principle of buyer beware. Buyers have to beware because sellers have an advantage. Um, information asymmetry essentially define the whole sales relationship. But then about you know, 10, 12 years ago, everything changed. We don't live in a world of information. We live less and less in a world of information asymmetry. We live in a world of greater and greater information parity. And so that change is as significant a change in business as, as we've encountered. It's, you know, to me, it's, it's arguably, you know, maybe not quite as significant as I think the implications of artificial intelligence are going to be, but it's a big deal. It's transformed almost everything we do in commerce. And so what we have is you got people spending enormous amount of their time selling, but doing it on a landscape that is completely new and unfamiliar. So that's the, those are the animating ideas in that book. And one of the insights you've shared in that book, many, but one in particular, I I found is so useful. And again, Dan, it's super connected to the work we do with, with our clients. You talk about the importance of communicating the 1%, yeah. which is the, the essence of an idea. Now, I can tell you that what I see all the time, one of the biggest challenges when we work with our clients, either then in preparation for an actual presentation or simply because they, they simply want to improve their presentation, their communication skills, is that most people, and we are talking about people who know a lot about what, maybe because of that, they know so much about what what they what they do, what they, what, what they want to talk about. They're so close to their idea that instead of the one percent, they communicate the ninety nine percent. So tell us, tell us more about the the concept. What what do we mean by communicating the one percent, and why is it so important? Well, it's important. It's important again, like like a lot of the stuff you've been talking about, in, in part as a thinking skill. Uh, so it's not only the communication of it; it's actually the thinking of it. So if you are a uh, and and I got this actually, believe it or not, I got this from a law professor that I had a hundred years ago. Um, where and, and so, if you think about certain bodies of law, uh, a lot of it does distill to one. If you think about any of my books, all right, okay. So, so, so you think about a whole new mind. I mean, we talked about that. What's the one percent of a whole? New, that's a three hundred page book, dozens and dozens of takeaways, great analysis, all kinds of data. I talk about the six abilities that are necessary in the new world of work. I talk about the, the economic forces that are moving us in that direction. But the 1% is that the skills that used to get you into the middle class, logical, linear, sequential skills are necessary, but no longer sufficient. And the skills that we've overlooked and, and undervalued, artistry, empathy, inventiveness, big picture thinking are becoming the first among equals. That's the 1%, all right? That's a sentence in, right, in, in a book that contains thousands and thousands and thousands of sentences. Um, and so the, so, so the, so, so it's also a thinking, it's a thinking exercise. Uh, and I think a lot of times when people can't articulate the 1%, it's because they haven't thought it through, or there isn't one that the articulation of the 1% is a consequence of the thinking of the 1%. Like what's the, what's, what is the, what is the essence of this? So if you look at something like, you know any any body any body of uh, corporate law, uh, anybody of law. All right, so you you know you you can take uh, a semester or a year's worth of corporate law, the law of corporations, and basically what it amounts to is is that is limited liability. Corporations, unlike people, have limited liability. Corporations uh, generally have a separation of management and control the people who control it and own it aren't always aren't often the people who are managing it and and if you know those two things you got the 1% of corporate law now there's obviously corporate law is complicated and so forth but the truth is if you're an expert in corporate law and you can't tell somebody that you're actually not a very good expert 
Uh, and we see this all the time. I, I encourage people to look at the work of, especially a guy, uh, a, you know, world-renowned physicist, uh, long, de long deceased named Richard Feynman, who did a brilliant job of saying that if you really want to be an expert, you have to be able to offer up. He didn't call it the one percent, but he call, call it call it the um, call it call it the one you know call it what he didn't call it the one percent, but that's what that's that that's what he meant. And so I've, I've totally spaced out on your actual question, but the gist of it is that uh, if if you that that expertise is as much about perhaps even more about clarity and simplicity as it is about volume. Hi there. Before we continue with this episode, I just wanted to take a moment to share with you some resources that I believe would be super useful for you. The first one is my book, Confident Presenter. Check it out. You can find it on Amazon. I'm going to include the link in the show notes. It's a book for business owners, leaders, and the teams who want to become more credible, confident, and convincing presenters. To make the most of the book, Take the Confident Presenter Scorecard, which is an online tool that allows you to assess your current presentation skills in less than three minutes for free. You just need to answer a few questions. The scorecard will give you a score from zero to 100%. It will tell you what that score means for you, and it will also identify opportunities for improvement. And then the last thing is my web class. I often run free presentation skills web classes where I go through my own process for creating my own presentations and those of our clients. So if you're interested, I'd love to see you there. I'm going to include all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. It means the world to me. Now let's jump back into the conversation. You mentioned Richard Feynman and and also like today, I don't know what you, what you think, but in the US, He's, he's famous worldwide. A great, in this case, science communicator is Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think, Dan. Uh, he's able to to communicate science in, in a way which is simple for, for, for many people to understand. In the UK, we have Brian Cox, who does similar similar work. Again, great communicator. And, and, uh, they, and, they, and they stand on the shoulders of people like Richard Feynman and, and Carl Sagan. Exactly. Yeah. Two Americans, but, you know. Yeah. And staying staying here to, to sell this human, those ideas, again, we talked about before, there's a chapter on pitching. And there is another super useful insight there, which is you say that the purpose of a pitch or a presentation in general is not often, the purpose is not to... To, to sell the audience on, like immediately to sell the audience on, on your idea, whatever that is. But often the purpose is to communicate something which is so compelling that at least it starts a conversation. And then, of course, then ultimately the objective is to arrive at an outcome which is which works for, for both parties. And I think then this is so, if we think about it, so if I think about my work, it's so powerful because often... What I see, for example, we have a presenter, a business owner, a business leader. Again, it's a sales presentation. They want to sell something, a product, a service, an idea. And they think maybe it's a group presentation. They think that their objective is to sell the audience on that product, on that service in the group presentation. Whereas often it would be much better to just take them to the next step, whatever the next step is. And it could be that you want to invite the audience to express an interest in a follow-up conversation one-to-one -one with you or with your team to learn more about what you do. So again, I, I don't I don't want to give the answer for you, but tell us more about this insight around the actual purpose of a presentation or a pitch, which is not yeah. immediately selling. Yeah, I I think this this guidance is, I mean, I think you did a good job of articulating the 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 big points. This is this is really uh guidance about pitching per se um where which is a little bit more about selling in the in the in the pure sense and this is based on some research done several years ago by scholars at uh, University of California Davis and at Stanford University who followed around uh screenwriters who were pitching ideas pitching movies to Hollywood um studios and things and 
uh, it was pretty remarkable because what they were able to do is they were able to record all of these encounters with the the screenwriters and the people to whom they were pitching. And they, they were trying to understand, like, why were some pitches successful and why were other pitches not successful? So it was really explicitly about pitching. And what they found, which this totally this research totally changed the way I do things. What they found was that the the people who were successful in pitching did something very different from the way that I pitched for like 35 years, 40 years. All right. The way that I pitched for 35 years was you go in there and you do a little show, essentially, but, you know, almost like a little vaudeville act and you dance around and da, 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 and then at the end you just go, but and you expect them to start open their checkbooks. Bang, bad way to do it. The pitching, the pitches that worked the best were pitches that invited the other side in as collaborators. So, so if you, so, so the response, I know I'm doing something well. Okay. If I get a response to, to, to pitching something, say, Oh, that's an interesting idea. That worries me. What I like, what excites me when I know I'm on the right track. If someone says, that's an interesting idea. Have you ever thought about X, Y, or Z? That's and so it was the pitches that brought people in as a collaborator were the ones that were most that were most valuable. And and I, and to me, that completely changed the way that I construct various pitches because I pitch stuff all the time, the way I construct certain pitches. Uh, and it also um, more important, it allowed me when I'm in the room for a pitch or even the metaphorical room, um, it allowed me to gauge whether it's working or not. It's not what matters less is not are people laughing at the jokes or whatever. What matters is, are they leaning in and offering their own suggestions? Are they leaning in and sort of eager to collaborate and, and participate? Are, are they active rather than passive? And so I, I think this is very powerful research. The purpose of the pitch is to invite people in as a collaborator, period. That's the 1%. <laughs> That is connected to, you made me think of something which is similar or it, it's a connected concept, which is the fact that most presentations are monologues, one-way communication, which is wrong. What, what we want to do as presenters is we want to create conversations. We want to turn presentations into two-way communication. And we can do that by developing, creating, designed conversations, which means that for the audience, it will feel like a conversation, but you as the presenter, you've done the work in advance. You've designed those those moments of interaction or conversations in advance as much as, as you can. Of course, we can only control what we can control. But then I wanted to also ask you about your insights on the one word pitch. Again, in To Sell Is Human, you talk about this, this concept, the one word pitch pitch can you can you tell us more about yeah this? this is again this is an idea i got from a a, a, a brit of all people uh morisachi the uh the famous ad uh executive uh and he has this really brilliant idea from maybe about 20 years ago called what he, what he calls one word equity one word equity and so the idea it, it's a it's a branding concept but it but we can take it and make it useful at the individual level and the idea is is that the goal of a brand is essentially to own one word in the language um, so that when people think of that word, they think of you. And when people think of you, they think of that word. A good example of it right now uh, is so successful that there's now an antitrust trial here in Washington, D.C. about it is is uh, is Google. Um, when, when people think of Google, they think of search. When people think of search, they think of Google. Um, and I, I again, as a thinking exercise, it's a. It is a powerful, powerful exercise when we think about, okay, what's the one word that encapsulates all of this? You did a version of this earlier when you said, hey, when I think about communication, I think the one word is, is, is empathy. Now, it doesn't mean that in the presentation itself, you go, empathy, That's and it. then leave. <laughs> Uh, what it means is that you use that again. All of these these concepts are similar. You use that as the theme, as the key, as the um, um, as the the almost uh, almost like the sort of the the the, the key and the, the key in the, in the musical sense, the key in which everything is sung. 
and and it's a and it's very useful as a thinking exercise and as a discipline exercise. There was someone who I was just helping out on some interviews uh, for something very important, and um, and the interviews were being done over Zoom. I just I, I'm not this is not a client. I don't have any clients or anything like just someone I was helping out, and but it was a very high stakes set of interviews, and in order and what i suggested was that she write on so put put a little sticker for, uh, sort of on so so i'm looking at i'm looking at my laptop all right and my camera is up here and there's a little the top of my laptop is just a little bit below maybe uh you know 2 centimeters below and i suggested that she put a little sticker with two words um, so that when she was looking at the camera in the interview, she would always come back to those two. She would always come back to those two words, um, not necessarily to say them, but to say, oh, this is the one percent. This is why I'm here. This is what I'm trying to convey. I'm curious then that for you. What's your one word? Like if I think about what we do, I think that the word would be presentations. I guess, or public speaking, but that's that's two words. So I would say presentation, presentations. Now for you, I'm asking the question because you are one of the most interesting, for me, one of the most interesting, insightful um, people, writers I know, but, not but, but at the same time, you, you go from one topic to to another, and, and I know that there is a connection there. But you talked about what motivates people. You talked about selling, persuading. You talked about you wrote about the science of timing. How so? I read when, for example, a few years ago, and now recently the the power of regret. And uh, and so, what, what's your one word? It's not something that I, I I am always consciously aware of, but it's something that I have that I have considered, uh, and it's it's somewhere it's 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 either rethink or reimagine something like something like that. That is that is what I want to try to do is get people to look at their own world, look at their own lives. And say, you know what, the way you're thinking about it, the way you're seeing it might not be right. There might be a better way to look at it that's going to be clear, but also going to help you out. So rethink, reimagine somewhere, something like that. You're right. If for for someone, if you've, so for someone who's read your books, then yes, it makes a lot of sense. We rethink, reimagine. You're right. Yeah, that 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 makes that that makes your point. Yeah. Okay, and... but I'll 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 go to the deeper part of your question, or or sort of the, the 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 foundation of your question, which is that uh, I I just write what I'm interested in. I don't have a grand. It's not. I mean, I'm talking to you from my office here. It's not like I have some grand strategy board back there where I'm saying I'm going to write about this and that's going to lead to that and that's going to lead to that. I just I just write what I'm interested in because. For, for I guess for two reasons. One, you know, writing a book is a giant pain in the ass, and so if you're not really, really interested in it, you're not going to get it done, or you're going to write a bad book. And the second is, is that if I'm interested in something, chances are a lot of people are interested in it because I'm not that special. It's not like I have some kind of, you know, incredibly refined taste. You know, so so let's take the book. Let's take the book. When um, I wrote that book about the science of timing, because I was making all kinds of decisions about when to do stuff, all kinds of timing decisions, when to do certain work in the day, when to start a project, when to abandon a project. And I didn't know how to do it well. And I wanted to read a book about it. And that book didn't exist. So in order to read that book, I had to write it. And so I figured if I had those questions about when to do stuff, other people had questions about when to do stuff. So so that's all that, you know, so, so there isn't, so, um, the, a lot of times, the any kind of theme in in the, in that particular case is often more visible retrospectively rather than prospectively with a clear strategic intent. Connecting the dots, going backwards. Yeah. Right. And let's close with one question on ambiverts. A few yeah. months ago, 
Dan, you wrote um, an article, if I remember well, it was in the Washington Post, where you also mentioned some research by Adam Grant. Yeah. Where the, the, you talk about the, the idea that I like what most people think, that the best leaders, the best salespeople are extroverts. You say there is no evidence for that. That doesn't mean that the best leaders or salespeople are introverts. You talk about ambiverts. For those who are not familiar with these, uh, tell us more. Well, I mean, ambivert is a term that's been in the literature in personality psychology for over 100 years. Uh, and it describes people who are somewhat introverted and somewhat extroverted. They're not strongly one way or another. And, you know, because of the popularization, the, the popularization of the concept of introversion, and extroversion is, is different from the way that uh, scientists, personality psychologists analyze introversion and extroversion. So it's not binary. It's not like My Myers-Briggs says you're either an I or an E. And that's not that's not that's not right. Uh, what we what you have to see is a, is a spectrum. It's a spectrum, you know, with with strong introversion on one side, strong extroversion on the other side. Um, but it's a spectrum, and most of us inhabit somewhere toward the middle of the spectrum. You know, I like I I, mean, I grew up to become a writer. Big surprise that I'm more introverted than extroverted, but I'm not like hugely strongly hide under my desk introverted. You know, and so um, and so I'm slightly more introverted than extroverted, but I'm kind of in the middle. And most of us are. I mean, the distribution of introversion, extroversion in the population is is very much a normal distribution where um, and this is true across countries um, where e even though across countries, the the mean, the middle, the midpoint, you know, in America, slightly more the me the mean is slightly more extroverted and say um, Japan, the mean is slightly more introverted. But the distribution is pretty much a normal distribution. Most of us are a little bit introverted, a little bit extroverted. And it turns out um, based on a, a study that Adam did now about 10 years ago that the the best exactly as you say the best the most effective salespeople were were not definitely not strong introverts and de but definitely not strong extroverts it was the people in the middle the ambiverts outperformed everybody else then if we if you think about what we talked about today so many different things but all connected to the idea of effective communication persuading influencing others and and a few other concepts as well Beyond your own books, which for our listeners, I recommend all of them. I've read all of them, Drive, When... You're very kind to say that. No, no, but, but yeah, but I, I do I do believe that. And A Whole New Mind to Sell is Human. I haven't read yet The Power of Regret, but I know that it will make me rethink what I think about regret, for sure. And... Beyond your own resources, do you have any, it could be one or a few books that come to mind then on, on all things, say communication in general, that you would recommend sure. to our listeners? Uh, uh, Influenced by Robert Cialdini, a classic book. Everybody should read it. It is an essential work, period, full stop. Um, I, I don't think you can be a, an effective communicator without having read that book. Uh, that's how important it is. Um, uh, you know, and that, that book has been around now for a while. Uh, there's another book that's been around for a long while now that I think is essential, uh, which is called Bird by Bird. It's an American book by Anne Lamont, which is about, you know, the, the importance when, especially for writers of, of sitting down and creating something and then making it better and making it better and making it better and not waiting till you're inspired, not waiting to make something perfect, but just honing and honing and honing and honing and honing and honing and honing bit by bit, bird by bird. So I think that that is a, um, I think that that is an essential book. And the other thing that I would say is um, less of a book than a, than a practice, which is to be um, observant and to memorialize things that speak to you. So I'll give you an, give you an example. Um, I, I have been, I, I keep a, a, a physical notebook uh, up in my, um, it's actually in my bedroom for those of you who are curious about that, uh, where every, uh, every day I write down a, I often capture it on my phone, but I write down in this notebook, a, a, a line or two lines that have stuck with me, something that I've read, something that I've heard, something that I've seen and every single day. And so, you know, I'm about to, these books, these line of day books come in 
uh, five-year increments. And I'm, 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 I'm filling up the, 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 the final and fifth year. I'll show you something here. So let me just see what, um, what I've collected recently. Um, okay, here we go. So this is strange. This is like a line from Nietzsche of all things, uh, that I read, but, and I don't even know why I saved this, but I saved it where Nietzsche apparently said, if you gaze for long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. So I, again, I'm, I don't know whether I'll ever use that again, but there's something about it that spoke to me in that moment. And so I'll write that down. Um, there's another one. Let me see here. Um, okay, here's another one. There's a concept that really stuck with me um, that I read in an article on Sunday. And it's from a guy whom I never heard of before. He's an anthropologist named Michael Tausig uh, of what he calls public secrets. Public secrets, which is something that is privately known but collectively denied. Uh, and it's like, whoa. That's kind of heavy, you know. That's pretty. That's 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 pretty amazing. Um, and so I don't know what I'll I don't know what I'll do with that, uh, but I'll write it down. There's I'll give you one more. All right, uh, because I, I collect them. I don't. On average, I write down one a night. Sometimes I'll write collect three and write down three in one night. So here's another thing that I saw in a newsletter somewhere, where he um, this is uh, Shane Parrish says a sign of character is the ability to learn from people you might not like. That's pretty good. Love it. And and so again, being a good communicator, being being a good thinker, and being a com good communicator, they're intertwined. It's a double helix. They're inseparable. A way to become both of those things is to be more observant, and also to sort of some degree of metacognition about the way you think and about what your tastes are. And a way to do that is to establish a practice of memorializing these kinds of things. What speaks to you and what doesn't? Um, and I, I find it one of the very best things that, I, that, that, that I've done, even if I don't, it's not like I go back and harvest that all the time, but it's the, the act of writing it down, the act of being conscious of those things, um, the act of being able to open up my phone and share it with you is incredibly uh, enriching and makes me a better thinker and a better communicator. Yeah, and as we as we close, if anybody wants to connect with you, where where should they go? Where where do they? Uh, find best you? best part is my is my website danpink.com. I also have an email newsletter, um, and I, actually the uh, an email newsletter just went out. And the latest one just went out a half an hour ago as you and I are speaking. So um, so that's a that's a good way to keep in touch. I'm not a, I'm not huge on social media. I'm going. That's to, another I'm, story. I'm going to include the of course your website in the show notes and any any final words any final messages for for our listeners no i mean i think that if they i think that if the listeners sort of listen to your advice on clear effective communication they're going to be in they're going to be in great shape don't make it harder than it really is put the audience first um uh, you know simplicity clarity and generosity above all generosity that could be the word instead of empathy Anyways, it's an interesting point. Yeah, uh, generosity is a gen generosity is a very good word, and I and I think that uh, it's uh, uh, give me ten ten seconds on this. It's it's interesting um, because sometimes um, I mean I'm not doing very much these days, but sometimes when I've gone out and given a talk or something like that, and one of the comments that I made to the organizers like, "Wow, that was a very generous audience." You know what I mean? And so I think that if you are generous as a presenter, the audience will be generous to you. And it's not zero sum. It's not like there's a certain amount of goods that you're that you're that 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 it's 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 positive sum. And so by being generous to them, they show generosity to you, and everybody ends better off. Much like this interview. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you for taking the time. I appreciate you. Appreciate your your work, your writing. Keep making people and keep making your audiences, your your readers, rethink the way they look at things because it's very powerful thanks again thanks a lot all the best if you enjoyed this episode of the ideas on stage podcast there are many more you might like so please subscribe leave us a review and tell us what you think you can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for ideas on stage on itunes youtube or wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening and goodbye for now